The following contains plot spoilers, and the comments and opinions expressed herein are for entertainment and commentary purposes only and may not reflect the actual opinions of Geeks Radio or the individual hosts. So don't get mad, it's just a show. This podcast was never actually meant to be made, but here we are. This is Totally Super. Hi, welcome to Totally Super, where we review every superhero movie ever made. My name is Justin. And my name is Arthur. And today we review a superhero movie never made. Um, This is Roger Corman's The Fantastic Four. This is a film that has lived in infamy, uh, not only for its existence, but because I, until this time until doing it for this podcast, had never seen it. Now, I've seen a lot of movies. I never even knew it existed until you mentioned it last week. I've seen a lot of B-movies. I've seen a lot of schlock. I've seen a lot of, you know, I, right now, um, I'm listening to podcasts about old horror movies and stuff and thinking about some old stuff like Prom Night and The Fog and stuff and remembering the times when I would watch things like Slumber Party Massacre 2 and Marvel's Punisher movie that was out in in video stores and stuff. So I have seen stuff that I will come right out and say is worse than what we watched for this, for this show. But even when I knew that this existed on YouTube and once, once I feel, and that, by the way, if you want to watch before you listen to our podcast, that's kind of the only choice you have is going to be YouTube or to go out at a convention and try and find a copy of it because you can't. This is a film that even once I knew it was available to watch, I never got around to watching it because, frankly, there are other great superhero things to talk about and to watch. But as we've been going on and as we've been listening or as we've been recording the shows, this has loomed in the back of my head as something that should be spoken about. There is another film. This is sort of a review of two films that we're going to be talking about today. Both Roger Corman's, and we say Roger Corman's Fantastic Four. It's really Ole Sassone's uh, Fantastic Four. Roger Corman is perhaps the man not just responsible for the creation, but also for the destruction of this film. So let's go Ole Sassone, the director's Fantastic Four, because he worked his butt off to make it. But uh, this this is a film that... We should review in tandem with the movie Doomed, uh, which is a documentary that you can find on Amazon Prime. Just look up the term Doomed. And it what it outlines is it outlines kind of the life and then death of this film and why this film never existed. So we're going to be putting it's those almost two kind of like together. a it's interesting. It's almost kind of like a mur- the, the documentary is like a murder mystery for a film. And because a lot well, of it is trying to that, figure out like who is the culprit, what was you know what was the motivation, and and who actually was the one who pulled the trigger. On did you feel thing. at the end of and we won't give give it up quite yet, but did you feel at the end of the documentary that you knew, or did you have some conspiracy theories like JFK style, like maybe it was this, maybe it was that? I mean, I get the I got the the only thing with the documentary is at the beginning. It, the documentary seemed to make it clear that, oh, we know exactly what happened and we're going to tell you at the end of it. When in fact, what there are is a lot of really, really good theories. And I mean, part of it, the fact that no one actually knows exactly how it went down. Like, did they realize before production even started that this movie was never going to get showed or was it a decision that made later? Um, those are questions that we will never know the answers to. Um and that does sort of just it 
that adds a little bit to the to the mystery and the mythos of the film. Now, let me ask you something about yourself personally. Have you, mm-hmm. outside of working Go on, on. Nin- outside of working on Ninjas with Me, and the short film that you that you worked on that I've seen, how how many independent films have you worked on, or is that something that you haven't worked on a whole bunch? Uh, not a ton. Uh, I am doing a little bit more of it. Uh, living down in Orlando, there are some uh, good film universities down here, like Full Sail and Valencia. Um, and what's great about those is that anybody who wants, uh, any kind of, you know, on camera experience, uh, if you're cool doing it completely for free is, uh, you can just go to their auditions every Saturday and there's always some student film being made. So I've made a, I've made a few of those. Um, and how many have you seen the final product of by percentage? uh, I'd say about 50 percentage, 50% of them. Yeah. Um, so no, that sense of. That when, when the actors in the documentary were talking about how excited they were when two years later they they were like, wait, there's a copy of the film. I can actually see my work. Uh, yeah, no, I've totally experienced that. I've done quite a few independent films. Uh, my IMDb does not accurately reflect the amount of independent films that I've worked on uh, in some capacity. And as an actor, I have done probably upwards of 10 or 15 at this point features and Mm -hmm. of the 10 or 15 features including the ones that i made and of the 10 or 15 features that i've worked on i probably would say that there are six or seven that i have copies of that have ever been seen and the only ones that have been readily available on a major outlet like amazon or netflix have been the ones that I made personally. They've been the Ninjas films and Trek Off. So the idea when you're making the film, I look back specifically to, there was a filmmaker in in Baltimore near where I live named Don Dohler who had quite the reputation in the 70s. He put out a movie called Fiend, one called Night Beast, one called The Alien Factor. And these movies got, because it was, in a time when making a film, you made it on film. If it was made, you had something that was actually kind of marketable. And despite something kind of tangible. the schlocky and despite the schlocky and low budget nature of these features, their existence and the the absence of other films to compete with them made it so that they got not only local but occasionally national airplay on cable channels. So this is a guy who had quite the reputation. You know, he worked with J.J. Abrams when J.J. Abrams was a kid. People loved and respected this guy. So I worked on his last two films, both as a main character and as the composer for the two films. And when you're working on them, you get the sense of, of, oh, my gosh, this is a Don Dohler film. And he had just done a movie called uh, Vampire Sisters, which had gotten like a DVD release and you could find in video stores. And you're like, oh, my gosh, it's amazing. And when you're working on it, you get this sense like this is going to be the one. This, you know, yeah, clearly this is low budget, but this is going to be the one. Something's going to come of this. This is neat. And I was very young at the time and was inexperienced as to what really neat would look like. I was just so excited to be on a film set with a guy that people had heard of who was sort of relatively famous, who had gotten distribution before doing something that looked really good. And you work on it, you work on it. And then you move on to the next thing and you understand that it takes a couple of years sometimes for it to come out. And then mm-hmm. you work on, I worked on a second one with him and that second one came, like got finished and the first one, the crawler, didn't get finished. And the second one comes out and there's a, you know, DVDs are available at the local premiere 
and nothing really ever happens with it. Not to, you know, which is nobody's fault. You didn't have the outlets that are available now. And it's this film mm-hmm. that you were that not only acting in, but doing the music for it took months of work. And it comes out and nothing comes of it. And the first one still, we're 10 years plus from, you know, 15 years plus from having shot it. Um, they're still working on it in hopes to have something to put out, but this is not going to be the start that you thought it was going to be. And when you're working on it, mm-hmm. you know this guy's got a reputation. You're like, holy crap, this is going to be it. This, I, this, this is going to be my time. And it doesn't happen. So Yeah, the uh, there's there are so many aspects in which uh, I would potentially even, certainly just as much as in theater, possibly even more in film, where it's such a roll of the dice. And you don't know whether your wager paid off until months or years down the line. Uh, and there's so many factors that, uh, that go into it. Like, well, case in point. So uh, one of the indie uh, horror films that exploded big on Netflix, at least as a cult classic, was Thanksgiving, I remember, about a, you know, a demon turkey that kills everyone for Thanksgiving. I can say objectively... Every single one of the ninjas films was better than Thanks Killing. Um, and, you know, and at least one of the ninjas films was on Netflix as well. But there's always the in this world of of, uh, you know, especially for indie. If something is indie, it has to go viral for it to really catch on. And uh, and some people say that they know the formula for how to for how to make something go viral. But that's a. That is a lot more of an art than a science. And a lot of it just comes down to straight up luck. Yeah. Well, and I think that's the thing. You don't know. You can, you because especially the, the turn, there, there's a reason why viral videos are short, cheap and shot yesterday, because you can try and catch on to the wave, but making a film takes a year at least. Mm-hmm. So if you're trying to catch a wave of what's going to be viral, by the time your film is made, it's probably not going to be something you can do. Like iPhone yeah. videos are go viral. It's you can't plan it. Your film can go viral because it happens to be on the wave of something. But mm-hmm. it's to create it as a feature film is an almost impossible thing. And I want to say, want to add about those two films that I made with 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 Don and with Joe, who who was Don's partner. The films aren't bad. Um, uh, I actually think no. I think Hunt's one of the pretty, was one uh, of them the uh, was uh, was one of those the ones about like the the uh, like the the film festival where there were people getting killed. Yeah, yeah. yeah I like that a, one. I, I went to the premiere of that one. Uh, I really like. Yeah, that that's. One. It's a pretty and crawler. I've seen the rough cut of it. It's pretty good. It's just things happen um, because when you're doing something indie, you're doing it for no money and money the, or some money. I saying no money is is inaccurate and doesn't really paint the real problem. The problem is you're doing it for some money and the money runs out. And when the money runs out, then there's no more money left. And if you don't have your shots, then you don't have your shots and mm-hmm. you don't have there's no more. You know, it's you can't you can't make more pie if you don't have more flour. You know, you just can't do it. Yeah. Um. So, so that is what happens with an indie film. Now, Roger Corman. If we talk about him a little bit, Roger Corman uh, is. How do I explain? Um, Roger Corman is not exactly indie. What he is is really more um, low level studio. 
um uh like he is famous for making low budget films but he is not a you know not a guy just making it out of uh, out of his basement for the love of making art this is a guy who is absolutely a businessman and he has uh made films that have been seen and have been released and he is you know he is known for making low budget movies that are meant to catch the wave of things that are popular you know they talk in the in the fantastic four movie specifically about uh, a movie called Carnosaur that was put out to catch the wave of Jurassic Park. And that mm -hmm. is something that, again, in the 90s, you're able to do. I don't think you can do as much now as you did before. Um, New World Pictures. What I find so interesting with, I was because I'd never really heard of Roger Corman before this. Um, and I went back to IMDb and was looking at all of his uh, production credits. And it was so weird because there's things like, you know, Attack of the Killer Crab. Uh, you know, some variant on the swamp people and then the silence of the lambs. And then the next film was like another, you know, like beach party murder sort of thing. It was just suddenly you had silence of the lambs in the middle of, uh, in the middle of everything else. And I was like, how did that happen? But well, yeah, uh, I mean, this, th this guy was in Hollywood. He was known. He was, you know, th this is a guy who was not just you know some rando guy who who didn't do stuff he actually put stuff out and made a good amount of money but he made his money a hundred thousand dollars at a time not 20 million dollars yeah. at a time um now it's also worth noting what was happening back in the 90s with marvel is marvel was no longer solvent marvel was falling apart and this is an important part mm -hmm. of the story marvel comics as we know it today is a powerhouse it's more it's, it's hard to believe given where marvel was in the 90s that it like right now marvel is bigger than star wars whoever thought that would happen but marvel's yeah, bigger and when bigger you, and more gosh, powerful a, than star wars it is so easy to forget how close to death Marvel and actually almost the entire comics industry came in the 90s. Now I'm going to give you guys a bit of a I was a comics guy. You're you're more of a comics guy now than I am now, but you weren't as much of a Marvel comics guy back in the 90s as I was. Um mm -hmm. in 1991, uh Marvel put out it kind of started the, uh, 2 years before with when Todd McFarlane took over Spider-Man, they put out 20 variant copies of Spider-Man number one because the first run of Spider-Man number one sold out and, you know, first issues were going like two months later for like $60. Like if you bought one for $3, you know, two months later it was worth 60. That happened mm -hmm. with the variants of that. So realizing that was the case, Marvel started doing these enormous runs, their biggest and most profitable one being when they did a new, there was only the Uncanny X-Men when it comes to the, the straight X-Men team titles. And they put out another one called just X-Men and X-Men number one that came out in the summer of 1991 was four variant covers along with one giant fold out cover along with hologram this and blah, 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 that. And just like they put out this enormous run, this in incredible run of the best selling comic of all time. And it's worth noting that I have every variant cover that I bought for five dollars back then, and today they're each worth four. Huh. Like they're 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 they put out so much, and what happens is that if Mar Marvel puts out all the comics, and if they don't sell, 
then you know then Marvel and the comic stores take a loss. So mm-hmm. what happened is they start they started thinking okay gimmicks are the way to go gimmicks are the way to go and comics came out with you know hologram cards on the front and and 70 different covers and and they're pre-bagged and don't open the bag so you buy one for the ba- one to collect and one to read and yeah. and they kept doing it and it just went down and a gimmick and down. a gimmick works once or twice but it is a that is a really piss poor long-term strategy cuz you lose because you lose interest in gimmicks really quick. Yeah, um, especially when you started realizing that uh, that there are as soon as you start realizing that there are like no payoff coming. Once you realize that that you're not having the Spider Man number one or the death of Superman experience, the payoff that you thought was coming from collecting those goes. Once you realize that's not ever going to happen for you you just kind of lose interest. And that's sort of what happened to me. I started just going, okay, oh, I'm just, oh, I guess that makes sense. It's, it's a part of the, part of the charm of collecting. Even if you know that you're never gonna, um, even if you never have an intent to sell anything or you don't, you know, you don't intend to go into that market, getting something, collecting something that you're like, ah, what the heck? This could be worth something someday. Um, it's the number one. It's the first issue. Yeah. Yeah. It's this number one. It's this thing. It, uh, I mean, I remember I was so excited when, uh, I got my issue of uh, Dragon Magazine number 200, which had a hologram on the cover and everything. And there was yep. very much that thought of, oh, this is a ve- this is besides being a good magazine, this object that I am holding has actual value. And uh, that's part of the fun of the collecting. And if you know ahead of time, oh, actually, this is neat to look at, but it has zero value, then I still might buy the magazine or the comic if the story is really good. But. You know, but that would literally be the only reason why I'd buy it. In my comic boxes, I have a, an entire section just labeled number ones. And it's got Fool Killer, number one, Speedball, number one. <laughs> just these, these comics that never anything came of. Except that the other day I realized that I had the Infinity Gauntlet, number one. And that's worth something now. Oh, oh yeah. No, that's that's big deal. Yeah, but it's not... It's. But because it was a number one, it had a high run anyway. If it had just been something that randomly came out, it probably would have had a bet. Like I have New Mutants 98, which is the first appearance of Deadpool. Who knew that New mm-hmm. Mutants 98 was going to be worth something? But that's, that's true. Because that's a perfect example of a viral thing. Deadpool, nobody expected that character to explode the way that he did. Yeah. And so that is that is where we find Marvel when suddenly people aren't buying anymore. Suddenly the gimmicks aren't working anymore. Uh, people are, or Marvel is, has spent all their money on these giant runs that nobody's buying. And these expensive comics is expensive to put holograms on comics. And when nobody buys them, that's a giant issue. So now you have Marvel, mm-hmm. a giant issue. <laughs> now you have ah. Marvel f- falling apart and they are selling off their film rights. And suddenly you've got, you've already had The Punisher and and that has been sold off to one company. And you have Captain America has been sold off to another company. And X-Men isn't really being made because you can't really do it. And James Cameron is going to be making Spider-Man. And that's a big deal, but that had nothing's come of that deal. Not, Spider-Man's not coming out. James Cameron put out a trailer, but nothing's coming of of what James Cameron was supposed to do with Spider-Man. Uh, things, nothing is developing. Marvel's falling apart. And part of what they do is they sell the rights to the Fantastic Four to new to Constantine Films, New Horizons. 
and and the deal for the Fantastic Four, the deal for all of the movies that Marvel com- puts out, is that if there is not a film in production within a certain amount of time of the last film that was in production, then you lose the rights to the movies and the, and the rights transfer back over to Marvel. That is why even when you've had failing X-Men films, you've had other X-Men films come out in the middle. Frankly, that's the reason you have low-budget movies like Logan come out because it allows them to maintain the rights to the X-Men movies while mm-hmm. while not spending as much money. Luckily, luckily, Logan was really, really good. Um, but if they don't use the rights, they lose the rights. And that is why when you know people go, oh, why are you rebooting Spider-Man after it didn't work? Why are you making another one? Because if they don't make another well, one, because they want to hold just, on to the property. Yeah, they need they need to have a Spider-Man film in production in order to not lose the rights to Spider-Man. So all of that being said, now you've got this company that's about to lose the rights, and they've decided that losing the rights is not worth it, and they've decided to make a film. Now the question that is not known, as as put up by this doomed documentary, is. Are they making the movie to maintain the rights or did they make the movie with the intention of putting it out as part it is part of maintaining the rights? Was the movie just a rights grab with no intention of putting it out or was it a film that was intended to be put out as a Roger Carmen film? And I guess that's what we'll go into at the end. Yeah. what add? Yeah. What adds into that? And the actors themselves express some questions about it because it's uh if you're like making a movie for the sake of just holding on to the rights, uh, you know, that happens a lot. But when you're done with the film, you've dumped a million dollars into that. You know, even if you just release it on a, to, you know, straight to video or something, you, you want to, you know, why not do something to recoup your investment? Uh, which is why, you know, this suddenly this whole other conspiracy that came in of, Oh, well, you know, Fox had started showing an interest in Fantastic Four. And so maybe it was uh, somehow it was Marvel Studios that started realizing we had because this was about the time that I think that X-Men was coming out. And uh, uh, I mean, that's the thing. This is a Fantastic Four is a tremendously campy film. It is it is a 1980s superhero film being made shortly after Jurassic Park. And, uh, or no, I guess X-Men hadn't come out at that time yet, but the, uh, but we were starting to see, uh, this was certainly made after the Batman films. Yeah, Batman Returns and, uh, had just come out. Yeah. So suddenly had, maybe Marvel was getting movies. this, maybe Marvel was getting this sense of, oh, you know, maybe we could make our movies better quality. Like maybe up until this point with the exception of Superman, um, and Batman, just about any superhero film was understood to be a B film. And absolutely. And there's pre Batman yeah, and, and Mar- post Batman. So one of the theories is that Marvel was realizing that maybe someone at 20th century Fox showed an interest in it. Cause Fox was the one who eventually did this new, uh, or the, the next reboot of fantastic four. Um, and so maybe they, Marvel has also been pretty good in their history, uh, about brand control in terms of if you, uh, if you let anybody, just if you just license your your intellectual property to everybody, then suddenly your brand is no longer associated with quality. Your character is no longer associated with quality. Like uh, with Harry Potter, 
J.K. Rowling is insanely good with brand control. Uh, Universal Studios, which has a, well, you've been there, it has a phenomenal Harry Potter section, arguably one of the most, arguably the best uh, theme park section of any theme park I've ever been to. And literally everything down to the shoes that the wizards have to wear is signed off on three levels, including Warner Brothers and J.K. Rowling herself. And because of that, if you see anything that is remotely related to Harry Potter, it is guaranteed at least a certain level of quality and adherence to the original canon. Uh, so you don't have sort of watered down. Like if you see a Harry Potter knockoff, it's not called Harry Potter. It's clearly a Harry Potter knockoff. Um, whereas certain other brands that have had really great stories or something, they've just sold out to everything. And, uh, you know, and because of that, the overall quality long-term of the brand goes down. So if Marvel was trying to rebuild its brand as sort of a quality thing, especially when it comes to film, it does make sense that maybe they would think, you know, we, we, we maybe don't want this to be released. Because this film actually, once I realized this film was camp, it was pretty delightful. Uh, it had some neat little fun moments to it, but it is definitively camp. Was it intended to be, though? That's the big question. That's that the, is the big question. So let's get into a plot real quick. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, let's talk about you, the film itself. Why not? All right. So uh, here we go. This is my improvised plot summary. You have Dr. Doom and, or sorry, Victor Von Doom and Reed Richards, and there's a passing comet that's going to come by that's going to give them a bunch of energy. But the the experiment they're doing on the comet goes wrong. It leaves Victor supposedly dead, but actually horribly scarred. Then you meet Sue and Johnny Storm, who are two young children living with their mom. Uh, ben Grimm is a family friend and a college buddy of his. I'm taking some of this from Wikipedia. Did you know little Sue, young Sue? I recognized her immediately. Mercedes McNabb, uh, Harmony from Buffy, but just fine. Mm -hmm. So we go to ten, 10 years later, and this little girl who had a crush on Reed is now a woman who Reed gets a crush on because that's not creepy. And Reed and this girl <laughs> and Johnny, who are suddenly incredibly qualified to be part of an experimental spacecraft going up into space, <laughs> goes to the goes goes into space as the comet passes by. They're hit by cosmic rays. They crash and all of a sudden they each have fantastic powers. Reed Richards becomes Mr. Fantastics with the ability to stretch. Johnny Storm becomes the human torch who can fly and set things on fire. The invisible woman becomes or Sue Storm becomes the invisible woman who can only become invisible. I didn't see her ever use a force field anywhere in this movie. She used a force she used a force field once at the end of the film, but it was a but I, I even when I was taking notes I wrote down Chekhov's force field because it just comes out of nowhere. And uh, and there's no explanation for it within the film whatsoever. So if you didn't know that from the comics, Sue Storm can use force fields, you would be like, what the hell is this? Ben Grimm becomes a shorter, different actor in a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles suit. Uh, it was so Teenage around. Mutant Ninja Turtles. With uh, with with animatron, it's actually not so bad for the budget they had. I was kind of impressed. It's not no, that it's was. not substantial. It's not substantially worse than the thing suit from the Fantastic Four movies that are going to follow this film. Um, they 
become the Fantastic Four, although Ben is is very upset at what's become of him, and he spends most of his time brooding and walking around. Now, we mm-hmm. find out that Doctor Doom is back, and not only is, ba- is he back, but he is the king of a eastern bloc country that we've never heard of and he has powers and he's got henchmen and at the same time somebody named the jeweler is trying to impress blind artist alicia masters with a giant jewel um he's clearly supposed to be the mole man but he's the jeweler so he was the mole man that they didn't have the rights to he is Opposed to and then eventually working with Dr. Doom as they're going to use this crystal for reasons. And so in order to stop them, the Fantastic Four do battle. Ben rejoins the group. They stop a laser cannon that's going to destroy New York City. And they all become the Fantastic Four as Reed and Sue go off and get married. And Reed's very long arm waves goodbye. (laughs) So no. I feel like here's the thing. This this is a uh, this is a film that we could spend two hours talking about everything that's wrong with it, but but it like honestly that would feel like low hanging fruit. It's a it's a camp film. The to me what I what I was always pleasantly surprised by was I was looking for the, the moments where I was like, oh, that's actually kind of a nice shot, or ooh, that's a neat character concept. Um, so let's say I this. mean this film, like film- I, I honestly. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. The f- film is trying more than any of the Fantastic Four movies that will follow to put the comic on the screen. And, and that's I love really that. important. They are... It's the tone of the comic. The comic is not camp. The comic is fun. Now, the film mm-hmm. is camp because it doesn't have the money to be fun. But I would say that the the two Fantastic Four films that are going to follow, by the way, uh, a brief note of how we're going to do this. Uh, I wanted to do all the films together. Arthur was kind of like, you know, you guys maybe not don't want to spend a month and a half listening to just Fantastic Four. So what we're going to do is this is going to be what we call our Fantastic Failures section, where we're going to do this film and Josh Trank's uh Fantastic Four that came out just a couple of years ago that are widely considered to be just like franchise crushing films. And then we're going to, in a few months, do the two Fantastic Four four films that came out that were moderate successes. So that's what we're going to do. So I'm going to say that the three other Fantastic Four films that follow this one have a level of either let's put it the real world or let's add a little snark to it or because this is so ridiculous let's it's kind of tongue-in-cheek it's uh, frankly it's what i would do is is the way the other ones did it. it's kind of like it's the desire to not put them in the spandex and make them all cool for school i and this one so i was thinking the, about this the uh yeah. the specifically when as soon as it became clear when these two Russian sounded henchmen uh, suddenly swept Victor's supposedly dead body away and said, oh, we must return our king to his country. I was like, oh, my God, they're actually making Dr. Doom from Latveria. And then as soon as I saw him in the costume and the armor, uh, I loved that. And I think especially of what we're seeing now, uh, because w- with the movies that have come out recently, because the special effects are good enough, because the CGI is there, um, my personal belief is, by and large, your comic is going to be more, or your comic film is going to be more successful if you don't 
try to, oh, let's make this a little bit more real world and everything. No, you lean into the fact that it's a comic. We don't want reality. We want magic. I, as soon as Fantastic Four, uh, the the next one that came out with uh, uh, with Jessica Alba, and uh, as soon as I saw that Victor Von Doom was not going to be in any way the Doctor Doom that was from the comic, uh, I immediately started getting reservations about it. Uh, if you're going to make a comic book film, be proud of the fact that you're making a comic book film. Lean in. Don't apologize for the fact that you're making a comic film. Uh, you know, it's people going to see a superhero film. We're, we're going to be willing to suspend our disbelief a great deal. Uh, it, so we're, we're happy would, to go along for the ride. It would be a while. It would be until really, I don't want to say until the Iron Man films, uh, but maybe until the Iron Man films. I know I would say Spider-Man started to blend it too. I think that Sam Raimi was a great choice for the first three Spider-Man films because he, he took it seriously. Could somehow he, but he also took it camp. He had no problem mm -hmm. blending the two because of his own personal style. And that was just part of yeah. the way that he made films. I think that other than those films, nobody had had really until Iron Man figured out how to add the the spark of camp and humor to an otherwise serious film. So what you had is you had one like 1989's Batman seems a little bit camp now, frankly, by comparison mm -hmm. to what we have. Um, but at the time, it has to be remembered, it was considered to be really serious. Like a pretty yeah, intense no, it, serious they, film. To their credit, they took it. They took that super serious. But if you watch it now, you see, you know, not only is the Joker, you know, relatively campy, but his goons are all kind of campy. They're they're in kind of a different film than Kim ba Kim Basinger and Michael B. Keaton are in. They are still, mm -hmm. you know, not just the Joker, but his goons walking around, and the music is a bit campy, and the extras are kind of like, oh. You know, like it's, it's everyone's got the big face and yeah, they lean more into the, you know, we call it at the time we called it stylized, right? It was it's Tim Burton. It's Tim Burton-esque is stylized. Mm -hmm. um, but when you rewatch it now, especially Batman Returns in 1992, it was like, OK, we are going to lean into the bigness of this. And I can I mean, you and I can both have both been on on stage sets where that feeling of okay just you know go big just go big just have fun and go big and when you're doing it mm -hmm. it feels great you know what i mean it feels like like whoa this is this is super fun and sometimes you watch those productions and you're like oh my gosh there's so much energy to this and sometimes you watch those productions you're like holy crap this is mm -hmm. this is a lot of flop sweat i think oh yeah that no what it's, it, it, it is totally possible to lean in and go big and still fail absolutely what i'm feeling and and it's part of the reason this film is as charming as it is. I'm feeling the sense on the set when I watch everybody, especially those Russian goons. Like they mm -hmm. were told love have the fun. Russian goons. Yeah, and but all of them were told to have fun and to you know go ten percent bigger. The the director was just like, yeah, make it a little bigger. This is a comic. We're gonna make it big. We're gonna make it fun. Not realizing, I don't think they knew they were doing camp when they were doing it. I think mm -hmm. they knew they were doing cheap and doing the best they can. And this is something that a lot of low budget filmmakers, including myself, are are guilty of. Really good low budget filmmakers recognize their budget 
and make the film that is budgeted that way. You know, uh, I I look at Robert Rodriguez's early films. I look at, of course, Kevin Smith, who I love so much. Uh, Ed Sanchez and Daniel Meyer with the, with the Blair Witch Project. They were like, okay, we don't have the money to make the movie there we want to make. So what we're going to do is we're going to adjust our film to our budget and make a really good film for the budget that we have. Then you have mm. B-movie f- filmmakers like myself who go, well, I want to make a big budget Hollywood film and I'm going to do the best I can with the money I have. <laughs> And mm-hmm. that's what this does. And that's how you get. I think this is unten- unintentional camp. And I only think that because I've made three films. And in each of the three cases, I was trying to make a good professional looking, you know, well acted, well shot. I thought it was like, like in my inexperience, I was like, this is amazing what I was doing. And it's only hindsight that goes, no, this looks really cheap. This looks really, really cheap. Um, but at the time I was like, I'm so. make, I'm, but I wasn't trying to be charmingly cheap. That's the thing. And I don't, <laughs> I, I don't think this is either. I think that I'm this inclined is, to agree with you. Yeah. I'm inclined to agree with you because watching the actors in the documentary, uh, talk about it. They all speak about this. I mean, yes, they definitely talk about it as the little film that could, but when they talk about their process and the or quality couldn't. of the story and everything, they, uh, they take it really uh, they take it really seriously. The uh, uh, was it uh, James Culp who played Doctor Doom? Um, he is like y- you have to watch the documentary just for this guy because he is absolutely the actor who takes his role very seriously and he describes the process of getting into Doctor Doom and watching the videos of Mussolini and and he turned in a pretty charming performance with it. But it is so clear that to him this is like. Dr. Doom was right up there with Iago. Uh, and and so just based on the way that he's describing it, I'm like, I don't think he realized the level of camp that the, even now, I don't know if he realizes the level of camp that the film achieved. Oh, it's hard when you've been in it to, you know, and let's absolutely let's, let's give it to this cast and crew. First of all, um, um, I normally don't correct you if you get anything wrong, but his name is Joseph Culp. And the reason I Joseph, correct you I'm is so I sorry. Want, I want every one of these people to be known. It, Alex Hyde-White, Jay Underwood, Rebecca Stab, Michael Bailey-Smith, Kat Green, and Joseph Culp. These actors did their very best. And they're not all great performances, but these are all actors who worked after this, who had careers. Mm-hmm. Joseph Culp uh, was the father of John Hamm's character on Mad Men. You know, he... he oh, you're right. Some, yeah. You know... Cat Green went on to produce and went on to produce and direct. I'm just going to go through the Wikipedia's real quick. Uh, uh, Michael Bailey Smith has uh, has gone on to be on Charmed and gone on to work on the X Files. Um, uh, Rebecca Stab uh, was you know was in Miss USA. She was uh, in The Young and the Restless. Um, she, I'm just going to go through real quick. Jay Underwood, who is the flash. Well, he was the most famous to begin. He actually was in a movie that I saw when I was a kid called the boy who could fly the boy who could fly. Yeah. Uh, That was a, that was a major Disney film. That was a huge film. And I remember seeing that, but this guy worked, you know, you know, up to like, he starts to fall off in the mid uh, 2000s. But this guy wanted to continue to work. I also want to um, give a shout out to a film. Uh, and of course, Alex Hyde-White. Uh, we'll mention him real quick. 
Uh, he was in a ton of stuff, and his last filmography is in 2012. But he continued to work, you know, for years after this. So these are all working actors who continued. Mm-hmm. There's a movie I want to call out real quick that's in everybody's IMDb that I just before we go any further because I know I'm going to forget. I want to bring out. There's a movie called. Um, now where is it? Because I just saw. There we go. Surge of Power: Revenge of the Sequel. And this is an independent sort of satire of of superhero movies. And every single one of the Fantastic Four actors are in this film. They oh, put them awesome. all to get all in there as superheroes. And it, for that reason and that reason alone, I'm going to seek out this film and I'm going to give it a few bucks because I want these guys to get more out of the work that they did. Um, mm-hmm. Look, guys, the the when they first put on the costumes. It's clear the kind of film we have. Yeah. Like the the four on their costumes, someone thought that that was a good idea. It's clearly just spandex and somebody like made a four with some felt. And it's sort of like it was like one of those iron ons that you would have like with the the underoos, yeah. uh, you know, when you were growing up. But and but here's the thing. The costumes were terrible, but I loved that they wore the freaking costumes. Um, you know, yes, they could have been made a whole lot better. Uh, but the idea, it's interesting that, you know, you flash forward 20 years later, um, you know, you think of that first line in, in the first, or that line in the first X-Men film of, uh, you know, what did you expect? Yellow spandex. But now, you know, today's day and age, if you made a fantastic four film and did not have some clear variant of the fantastic four costume, that would be seen as a misstep. Uh, like everyone wears the freaking co- like because the because the budgets are big enough now. Like everyone wears the freaking costumes, and it works. Well, and I think that's again. It's yes. I'm glad that they wear the costumes. I'm not happy with how the costumes look. Clearly, no. Except for Ben Grimm. Except for Ben Grimm. I have to say that I am so impressed for this film. How good Ben Grimm is for me. Maybe it's because yeah. I was such a fan of those Turtles films, which I'm sure we're going to cover. Oh, I love those Turtles films so much. Yeah, um, especially the first one. And I know I'm going to yeah. be weird saying this, but I kind of liked the third one. Um, uh, the, oh, I like that one, too. The, yeah. The animatronics on him. What I felt for him, he was a fully realized character for me. And I and I dug that. I want to talk real quick about the sound when it comes to Dr. Doom. This is how cheap this movie is. Uh, Mm -hmm. There was never any intention by Joseph Culp to use the onset audio for Dr. Doom. They, they, they was doing it for reference on set. And what you would do, the way you would do this film once he has the mask on, right, is you would have him say his words on set and then he'd come in and he'd record what's called ADR, automated dialogue replacement. And you come in and you do the voice on a good mic, you know, on the, the way we're recording on our mics right now, you come in and you do the performance again, but you listen to what you did on set as a reference so that you so that you can kind of mimic the performance you gave on on the set. That's the way you do it. And mm-hmm. he came in to do some and he did some and then some they were just like, yeah, we're good. That's good enough. And there are times you can't even hear what Dr. Doom is doing. Now I don't bring this up film. I don't I, I don't bring this up to damn the film in any way. But I do look at it and I go it 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 shows where the issue is with this film because it feels like the film's being sabotaged from within. There's no reason you wouldn't spend a couple bucks 
to get that part done. There's no, it's, mm-hmm. and, and maybe that's the problem, right? That it makes zero sense to me. They spend money in some places and then not in others. And I don't, I don't understand it. And I don't think the actors end up understanding it. Um, mm-hmm. Like, again, we could go well, it through. Sounds like it, it sounds like a lot of the money stopped, like the, the money spigot got turned off pretty much as soon as they entered post-production. Like the Ben Grimm costume is amazing for the budget. Uh, but that was during production. But, you know, that costume had to be built for during production. ADR, that is a strictly post-production thing. Yeah. Um, it's like this is a group of people who worked hard on a film and you can, you know, when you watch doomed, they, you can see they arrived on set and the set was kind of crappy and there were rats running around and they were like, Oh no, but we're still going to give it our all. And then they got the costumes and they're like, Oh no, but they're still going to give it their all. And then they go to another scene and they're like, Oh no, but they're still going to give it their all. And this, goes all the way through post-production and it's not happening. They're not doing promotion. So the cast went out and spent their own money to go promote the film. And they're thinking, oh no, but they go out and give it their all. Um, Mm -hmm. There is, and this is what I'm going to want to give this film. There is love inside this film. Tremendous love. um, Which much more polished films do not have. And it means that I am I'm willing to excuse so much more because even watching the film, even if I hadn't watched Doomed, these guys are trying, you know, to give their best performances. And yes, sometimes Mr. Fantastic gives a bad line reading and it does isn't that great. But then I realized part of the reason it's not that great is because he's being shot with a really unprofessional lens. And and he's not being told, hey, bring it down a little bit like simple directing things. These are actors who are just told go. You listen to um, to uh, what's her name? Rebecca Stab, who played uh, Sue Storm. They weren't even allowed to rehearse. They were just told yeah, go. it was just get it done. Like the, the speed with which this film came together is really astonishing. And it's worth noting for those of you who like there are bad performances in there. Johnny Storm gives a bad performance in, in much of the oh. film. Um, I know that's but, I, I'm sorry. I just have to stop there. Johnny Storm's performance was actually my favorite part of it. It was. Yes, I could absolutely see why you said it was bad, but that kid was so passionate about it. I actually um, I felt like his Johnny Storm. Um, I, I actually liked his Johnny Storm more than Chris Evans's, And I love Chris Evans. But uh, yeah, it was it was dopey and. And a little weird, but there was such enthusiasm behind it, which really goes with Johnny Storm's character so well. well Sorry, what, that was what I'm thing. seeing is what I'm seeing is is the definition of uneven performances. Four actors with their own ideas of what their performance should be, and they're all giving different kinds of performances, so none of them work. This is not an actor mm, problem. Yes, and this is this is a director problem, but not because you know the director was a bad director. The director has to also know what the shots are going to be, also know what the effects are. The director's in charge of all of it. What a director would normally be given is time to sit with the actors and work them out. Like when you guys see a play or you see a movie, this thing has been, in the case of a play, rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed. In the case of a movie, when you have a day coming, you one, you'll have a table reading, then the director will sit down on, you know, people go rehearse on their own a little bit. But but on the day, even if they haven't rehearsed, the director will sit down, they'll do a reading with them. And then what the director does is tweaks the performance on you know on the set so it then reaches what it's supposed to be 
And this mm-hmm. is not the fault of the actors. There's no tweaking happening here, and there's no there's no rehearsal. There's no one person watching from the outside going, "I need this to mesh this way." It's it's the a, a movie that the performances in a movie and in a play are a lot like making a stew, where you have the basic recipe for a stew that was not very good but will kind of work, and then as the cook, you add a little of this, a little of that, a little of this, a little of that, until finally your stew becomes something really good this is all the right ingredients put in but no adding a little this this little little that even in post-production that could made it made it better so that everybody is a is given a disservice by the cheapness of the film um that being said i would say if this film cost three times as much i wouldn't like it as much as i do because i was shocked by how much they were able to do with one million dollars yeah, this was this. Well, I think that look, there's not much more to say about the film except this. Let's get into the the last bit of meta knowledge on this film, which is this: when the film was done, post production began and then was abruptly stopped. Promotion was started and then was abruptly stopped. And the question has been raised: Was this film ever meant to come out? There are two prevailing theories. The first theory being that the Fantastic Four was made just to hold on to the rights. The second is that the Fantastic Four was made with the intention of putting it out, and Avi Arad, who was working uh, on the X Men cartoon, um, was working on getting X Men sold um, and wanted to grab control of the property, and so paid Roger Corman off the production budget um, in order to grab the just distribution rights to the film and then and then shelve it basically in any case i want to ask you arthur do you feel like roger corman ends up being the villain of this piece because um did did he have a responsibility to these people who worked on his film because i will say this ninjas versus monsters i paid money in the thousands in order to get that film finished, knowing that I would never go into profit because I knew how many people worked as hard as they did on it. Um, mm-hmm. Is there a responsibility by the producer to go, you know what? Yes, it's a business, but this is also people deserve to get their work seen. And like, do you feel like he's a villain of the piece or do you feel like, hey, business is business and that's just the way it goes? So the way that I would so, so if we are assuming that uh, that Corman had a that he had a say in the matter, because uh, I think there was some there was some question about in the contract, like it might have been that because Marvel had a better option with 20th Century Fox, like there was language in the contract that they could actually just say, no, we're paying, we're buying you out, uh, but you don't have a choice in the fact that we're buying you out. Um, but assuming that if as producer he had a say in uh, he had a say in it and assuming that his studio was not hurting at the time. Uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of a bit of a jerk move. I mean, I, I don't know enough about the Hollywood industry to know how, uh, I mean, I do know the fact that everybody, every actor in the film was just like, well, yeah, that that's Hollywood. Um, it's a pretty, I mean, you know, nothing personal, just business backstabbing happens all the time. Um, I don't like that fact. Like that's not to, that's not to okay it or normalize it. So no, if I, if I were a producer in the same situation as Corman, where this was not going to bankrupt me and I had a choice in the matter. No, I absolutely would have put that film out. Um, on the other hand, Corman is known Corman is known as a capitalist and is a business venture. And if he was able to save his studio, then that is, you know, you know, if he wasn't mm-hmm. a giant fan of the Fantastic Four himself, then, you know, maybe that was, you know, 
if, if it wasn't a, a passion project for him, if it's one of 30 films he is working on, then, you know, then you do mm-hmm. what you've got to do. Um, yeah. So all that being all that being said, uh, the Roger Corman's or, or really uh, Ole Sasson's fantastic form for on a scale of one to five fours. Uh, how would you rate it? <laughs> I was thinking that um, I would rate it. Uh, you know what? OK, so uh, I would give it a two um just because i mean look there's a ton of love behind it and uh but at the end of the day it's you know it's certainly it's nowhere near one um the but what will lift it from a two to a 2.5 for me uh something we haven't talked about yet is the score uh this the music especially the main theme it's a 40 piece orchestra it's and it's a good theme like i first started the uh uh, you know, when the opening credits happened, I was like, geez, this is at least just that moment. It was almost John Williams level. Uh, there's a lot of, in in a sense, it actually, I don't know if it helps or hurts the film because at least initially nothing about that score says this is going to be a camp film. Uh, there, there are a lot of scenes in which the score elevates what's going on on the screen. Um, so between that, between all the love for the characters, uh, between some of the interesting things that they did with the concept like the uh oh each of these powers are actually reflections of the temperament of the character uh which was a you know a neat thing to explore uh yeah i would give it a solid 2.5 i also I mean, if i, if I two- went into it if i went into a theater and spent ten dollars on that film i would walk out feelings like to me if i walk out feeling that nope that was a good spend of ten dollars that's that's a three for me I would have felt like my money was a little bit wasted, but shoot for sitting, you know, in the comfort of my home, watching it on YouTube, absolutely worth it. 2.5. I'm going to say I would have given the movie itself a 1.5, but it's elevated by to a 2.5 by the presence of doomed. Um, I would say that I am glad to have seen it because I got an emotional and, and, and full experience by watching first doomed and then this film. Um, it made me appreciate it and root for the film and the actors involved. So I'm going to give it a strong 2.5. Now, the question is, is next week, are we going to give the same consideration for a film that also goes off the rails for totally different re- reasons? Josh Trank's um, infamous Fantastic Four film is what we're going to be hitting next week. But for now, my name is Justin. And my name is Arthur. And hey there, true believers. Stay super. Now that you've finished the show, be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode of the Totally Super Podcast. Also, if you like this, you should head over to geeksradio.com or search Geeks Radio wherever you listen to podcasts. There you can find Trek Off, the not-safe-for-work Star Trek podcast with Justin and Alexia. So search for Trek Off, search for Pop Off, search for Geeks Radio, and just thanks for joining us. This has been a presentation of Endlight Entertainment.